Hey folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to Jeremy Holt. How's it going, Jeremy? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So today, I'm out of my element. Uh, where are we recording from today? We are recording from the Dana Auditorium at Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont. In a very fancy sound booth, which is why it's so quiet. You could hear a pin drop or... Yeah, it's like we're recording in space. Yes. Like that movie Gravity, have you seen oh, that? Oh, yes. Gravity's so good. Yeah. Underrated. Totally underrated. But I mean, rated though. It was so good that I, I walked away thinking, I know what it feels like to be traveling in space. Like, I don't ever have to be an astronaut. Not that I'd ever become an astronaut, but like, now I know. My body and mind knows what it feels like to be an astronaut. So... You put yourself in Sandra Bullock's shoes. Oh, yeah. And I saw it in 3D, which made it even more impressive. Ooh. So it was really cool. We were speaking earlier about the power of panorama. Yes. <laughs> it can really transform things, your experience. So we're in Middlebury, and you are a Middlebury alum, am I correct? Uh, no, I'm not. Oh. Yeah, I moved here f- uh, because of a um, now ex-spouse who oh. works at the college. Oh. Um, so I moved from Brooklyn about six years ago. So that's the connection. Yes. I had, I'd never been to Vermont. Um, I was dating someone at the time who had already accepted a position, and it seemed like a good enough reason to uproot. So I moved, um, knowing no one, having no job, and just kind of made it work. Um, and I got divorced last summer um and i just i like vermont so i decided to stay so before this you were in brooklyn mm-hmm. born and raised or nope i was only there about five years bounced around i oh. uh, was in the west village for a year and then uh crown heights south slope park slope all area. over the borough so so what brought you there um friends from college uh, I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design. Oh, okay. Yeah. Work. And uh, all my friends decided that they were going to move to New York. And I was actually planning to move back home. My parents retired in Texas, and I was going to move home and just find a job or something. And all my all my friends, including two of my roommates, were like, we're going. You got to go. I was like, okay. So I just rented a U-Haul and drove uh, to my roommates. We all drove to Brooklyn and... Found a place and, yeah, that's why I was there. And did that New York thing. Yeah, it's intense. I mean, I I actually was only there, I was there a year and then um, I couldn't afford to live there. Um, and I was working four jobs, um, two of which didn't pay. One was an internship that gave me a, like a, a stipend of $15 a day. So, like, mm. it wasn't the most responsible thing to do. <laughs> um but it got me by for about a year, and then um, I ended up moving home for two years. And then uh, a friend from high school was moving to New York, and she's like, I don't want to do it alone. Do you want to go with me? And I was like, yeah. And I had a, I was working as a um, genius at Apple. Oh. And then I transferred to the uh, West 14th Street store in the West Village and found an apartment in the West Village for mm-hmm. uh, my roommate Katie and I. And uh, then lived there and then just stayed there until I moved here. So things ended up kind of falling into place. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes, I mean, I've been here about six years now and, mm-hmm. I, and I wonder, sometimes I wonder why I'm here. Sometimes I wonder, like, how did I, what were the decisions I made? But 
seeing how how my life is going now as far as my productivity with writing and and managing managing to still have a day job and not have that be too stressful um it kind of does feel like it's worked out so do you feel like vermont has given you sort of like time and space to explore things a bit more where you couldn't in new york yes i think initially i was really concerned because I think anybody who lives in New York, they feel like the city is part of the, their inspiration, especially for a creative person. And I felt very dependent and reliant on that. And I thought if I leave New York, my creativity is maybe just won't be there because I'll be looking at – I was assuming I was going to be just looking at green fields and stuff. Um, so I was concerned about that. And the first three months was really hard just getting into a groove, um, not having a day job. I was unemployed for about three months and – I was just trying to figure out what to do, and uh, what really helped was I ended up adopting a dog, and that dog gave me structure, um, and I realized that I don't need the city to be creative. Uh, I just need to be more disciplined uh, because the city is nice. There's a lot of distractions, and it was nice to not have those distractions, and I actually realized I'm, I'm way more productive without those distractions. So it was it was a learning curve, though. Tell us more about this dog. <laughs> well, uh, he passed away um, a couple months ago. What was his name? Otto. He's a miniature pincher. Uh, oh. He was old. He was like 14. Bless his heart. Uh, went deaf uh, a year before he passed. Um, was He was an okay dog. He, he was being <laughs> deaf and starting to go blind. He was always very defensive and like... Mm. He, if he couldn't hear you coming and you scared him, he'd bite you. And, of course. Which is totally normal. And it just got to the point where uh, his quality of life was just really non-existent. So, um, But, I mean, I did learn a lot um, taking care of him. Um, it was kind of like taking care of a child. I mean, he was in diapers at one point. Mm. So it was a very special needs dog. Um, but with that, like, you know, I was able to kind of force myself to – build a routine. Mm. And for me, I need routine. Mm. Like as much as I want to be a full-time writer and quit my day job as, as fantastic as that concept seems in my mind, I've come to realize that I don't think that's actually what I want because if I have to depend solely on my creative work to pay my bills, it changes my relationship with the work. And I have a lot of friends that have done it and I think it's great. I just don't think I'm, in that headspace to do that. So. Well, the the name of the program is Brown and Out. So, given what we've already talked about, tell me about how living in New York versus living in Vermont for like, the same amount of time, right? Yeah. And I feel like, you know, geographically, they're not so far apart. I mean, relatively speaking, but culturally, you know, Brooklyn is not Middlebury. They're not as much as one would like to think right. at times. How, how do you compare um, both of these places and how they shaped your views on race and identity? Oh, that's a good question. It's a big question. <laughs> Take your time, please. Well, for anyone who isn't looking at a photo of us, 
right now. <laughs> uh, I am Korean American. Uh, so identity and race has been something I think about all the time as a person of color. It's complicated for me because I'm also a identical triplet. I have two triplet brothers. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're also adopted. Uh-huh. So raised by um, white people. Mm-hmm. I, two of my siblings are white from my dad's previous marriage. My youngest sister is Chinese-American that we adopted when I was a kid when uh, I was growing up in Singapore. Um, so the transition from Brooklyn to, to Vermont was actually pretty smooth. I've spent most of my life traveling, so so big moves like that weren't, weren't a shock to the system um, for me. Uh, I can acclimate pretty quickly. Mm. Um, I think the differences that I've noticed in the past half decade is people in New York, there's an anonymity. And yes, it's a cultural melting pot. There's all different types of people doing all different types of things. But it's hard to kind of really get to know anybody. And it's because of this anonymity that people like to hide behind where if I run into you and and you're in my way or whatever, I can say whatever I want with no repercussions because I'm never going to see you again. And once you live like that, there's this level of constant low-level stress that you just have to live with, like getting up, stressful getting on the subway. You don't know what incident you're going to run into. You don't know if you're going to be late. You don't know if the train's going to be running on time. Uh, so all these compounding factors makes this this kind of low-level stress where your shoulders are always tense. And when I moved here, I remember my first day literally moving stuff off of, off of a van into this college house that, that um, my ex and I were renting Two neighbors on both sides came up with pie. And I was like, what do you want? I'm not I'm not buying what you're selling. And they're like, no, no, just welcome you. I was like, mm, okay, stop being weird. And I've come to realize that people here, there's positive intent. And it's everyone's nice because I'm probably going to see you again. So why be mean? And my friends from New York, I've come to realize the difference because they've mentioned it. They've said, oh, don't you miss the anonymity? I think about it, I'm like, no, not really. I mean, I don't miss... That's stress. Um, it's a grind. It really is a grind. It does grind you down. And then trying to make rent every month, it's this roller coaster of emotions. And the similarities, I would say, is that Vermont is not cheap to live here. It's not cheap mainly because there are really no jobs. And the jobs you can get don't pay well. So in one aspect, just the day-to-day of living in New York was stressful, but making money and paying rent was not as stressful as here. Um, so I think it's kind of a trade-off, and there's a lot more driving. I miss the walking. Um, so, yeah. And as far as identity and race, I've actually not experienced any, like, straight-on racism. I've experienced ignorance, which is something that I can totally give a pass on. Um, I, <laughs> there's this really funny story where I was working at Small Dog Electronics in Rutland when they had a, a location down there. Mm-hmm. And this guy came in, this older gentleman, uh, Caucasian, Italian, uh, was talking to me and I was helping him. And, and uh, I mentioned that I was raised by um, Irish, Irish Catholic uh, grandparents and was raised on Italian food. And, and he's like, oh, my wife bakes the best ziti. I'm, I'm going to bring it in for you. I was like, mm. oh, that sounds great. I'm not <laughs> thinking anything of it. And he actually did bring in this dish of baked ziti. And I was like amazed. And then a couple weeks later, he calls in and he's like, I need to speak to Jamie. 
And Jamie was the guy I worked with. I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, uh, what's this in regards to? He's like, oh, I need help with my computer. I was like, oh, I think you mean the the technician Jeremy. He's like, no, no, it's Jamie. I was like, no, his name's Jeremy. And he's like, oh, you mean the 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 uh, little eight, the little Chinese boy? I was just like, um, excuse me. Yeah, the little Chinese boy. And I'm I don't mind Chinese. I don't even mind boy. Little is what I don't understand. So then I hear his wife say, don't, don't say Chinese, say Asian. He said, oh, the little Asian boy. And I'm like, oh, my God. That made it better, right? Yeah, of course. And so that kind of stuff, I'm like, you know what? You just don't know. I'm, it's not necessarily my responsibility to educate you on this stuff. Um, but I'm also not going to, like, get confrontational about it. So, um, but, yeah, I, mean, I ex- actually experienced more racism in, in Brooklyn than I did – than I have here. Again, the anonymity. People can just say what they want. So, what, um, if I may, what experiences um, in Brooklyn did you have? Um, I was working when I first moved to New York. I was actually working at Victoria's Secret in Manhattan. Um, it was a summer job I got senior year or after I graduated college. It was kind of a a, a dare almost with my friends, like, oh, who's going to get a job at Victoria's Secret because they're hiring? So I went and I got the job and I transferred. And my manager, this guy Ray, um, I was tasked with unloading shipment from the trucks in the in the morning. And I worked with this other guy, Kim, who happened to be Asian. And we were unloading uh, shipment. And Ray, our boss, is talking to the delivery guy. And he's like, yeah, you know, Kim and Jeremy know about working long hours. You know, they spend 18 hours in the rice paddy fields. And I, I was too young to kind of realize, wow, okay, that's – blatantly racist and I should go to HR about this but what did I know I was like 22 um, and I've had people like women strangely enough black women cat call me at, late at night when I'm walking home um, saying you know somewhat racist things and people driving by yelling outside their window and I mean like it happens um, so yeah and I've lived in six different countries and I've experienced some form of racism or um, bigotry, it doesn't really matter. It's it's everywhere. Hmm. It just sort of takes on a different uh, face maybe or tone mm-hmm. from place to place. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, but it's not – I've lived in worse places. I'll just put it that way. Worse um, in regards to what, like, uh, social things or? Um, yeah, I think uh, living in Georgia mm. um, was unique. And when was that? Uh, this is this would have been 2001 to 2005 for college. So I was in Savannah. Oh, right, SCAD. Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, and then even Texas, honestly. Uh, was I, that before that? Yeah, I was – I finished the last two years of high school in, in Texas. Um, I was – the first years of high school, I was living in Norway, and wow, my, yeah. When my parents we had to get into that, well, okay. So the, the six countries you said six countries, yeah. This, well, let's rattle those off real okay, quick. Okay, so uh, I spent a year and a half in Italy as a child that I don't remember. Six years in Singapore, four years in Norway. Um, I guess it's less than six. Six, yeah, and then um, Texas for high school, Georgia, but I've. I've been kind of all over, like every holiday, my parents would take us to some different country. Lovely. Um, so, 
Yeah, Texas was a shock because um, I grew up in international communities, so a lot of expat communities where you don't really have to learn the language, and most of the places we lived, English was pretty well spoken. Like in Scandinavia, everyone speaks English better than most Americans. And um, leaving Norway and moving to Texas, that was perhaps the biggest culture shock. Hmm. Going from Singapore to England, not so much. Going from England to Norway, not so much. Going from Norway to Texas, it was like landing on a different planet. Hmm. And that was your first time in America? No, I I went back every summer. My grandparents um, lived live in New Jersey, so ah, okay. And a lot of my relatives either are in and around New Jersey. Uh, one's in Tennessee, one's in Atlanta, and then my dad's side of the family is all mostly scattered around Pennsylvania. Okay, so you had been coming to the states like to visit? Yeah, yeah. It was still a novelty, uh-huh, um, right? But. Moving to Texas was just strange, and my mom wanted to try to put us in the smallest school possible because hmm. most of the schools had like three, 4,000 kids in the high school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my graduating class, if I'd stayed in Norway, would have been like 32 people. <laughs> and the school itself was K through 12. It was like less than 500 kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so she decided that instead of putting us in kind of a more affluent area um, with a very large high school, she decided to move us to kind of – outside of that like i'm not going to say it's rural but to me it felt very rural Mm. um and it was about a thousand eleven hundred kids so way smaller than most of the surrounding schools but it's still massive compared to what i was used to and the problem with that is that all these kids grew up together Mm -hmm. from birth Mm -hmm. and it was very hard to kind of figure out how to navigate that um and you know there were only i think six asians in my high school and a lot of the kids thought we were all related and it was just like well, I am related to half the population of these of the Asians in our school, but not all of them. Um, so, yeah, it was just that was kind of a shock. Hmm. It sounds like a bummer as well. It, it and was. This was high school. Yeah, yeah, it was high school, and, I, and I'm. It was also strange for me to to be around kids that some of them really wanted high school to just go on forever. That Varsity Blues shit. Yeah. Oh, that my school, <laughs> my school, imagine Varsity Blues, but our football team was terrible. At least the, the years I was there, n- never won a game ever. Friday Night Lights. <laughs> yeah. But the lights were dim. Yeah. Oh, nicely put. <laughs> so, yeah, let's – so you were raised in, like, a Texas football culture? Um, not raised. I, I just happened to – it was on the periphery. Yeah, it was and so like the tail end. It sounds like you sort of chose to um, go a different route. Is that I, safe yeah, to say? Yeah, I went, I went right into theater. I focused on arts. Oh. I was the president of the art club. Mm-hmm. I somehow managed to get voted most talented, which was Ooh, very strange. Humble brag. I see you. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to do something very different than than my two brothers who we'd grown up playing sports. Mm-hmm. Oh, so they were about that football. They were life. they were definitely into basketball. We were all oh. into basketball. So they okay. continued to play it when we moved to Texas and I decided, you know what, I'm gonna do something they wouldn't even dare to do, which is get on stage. So um I ended up in a theater class junior year of high school and really fell into improv and I really love that and um I almost considered doing it when I got to college, but um, I just – for some reason I didn't think – I didn't think I was good enough because um, – and this is not really kind of a slight to my my teacher at the time, but um, I was always cast as someone who was never part of the family. 
because Ooh. I was the only Asian person, which is strange because actually one of the, the lead actresses in our group, um, this woman, uh, Monica, is black. And she was cast as a sister or a mother or whatever, and mo- everybody else was white. And that was fine. But no, I played the doctor or the, doctor. the cab driver or oh. like we did Grip's Wrath and I was the guy coming back from California telling the jokes not to go because my family was dead. I mean like <laughs> it, it just made it more – it made more sense because I was just – I took it as you're just so different looking. It's going to be off-putting for the audience. It's called typecasting, right? Yeah. But it's like stereotype casting. Stereotype casting. And I didn't really understand that concept in high school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But when I got to college, I think it really did influence my decision not to pursue it because I thought, you know, I'm just – I can't – I'm not going to be viewed for my talent. I'm going to be viewed for my face. Mm. They're like, oh, we know. We know what's yeah. good Oh, for you, you don't have to say anything. We, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chinese <laughs> delivery guy. We got it. And I just didn't – I didn't – I didn't have the courage – so I just kind of went in, in a different direction. And sometimes I do, I do think about that. And, and the nice thing about writing comics is that um, I get to explore these things and there's a safety to it. There's a safe place for me to do it and I can kind of explore the things I want to explore um, in the way I want to do it. And that's kind of the freedom with comics uh, has that. Like I did – I went through film school. Uh, I had a job doing post-production audio uh, editing uh, when I got out of college, did that for about a year, but I realized that's not what I wanted to do. Um, and it wasn't until many, many years later that I I wrote a comic that actually came out last summer and there's a music component to it and the, the rough idea is that music is a form of time travel because we all have songs that transport us to places in our past. So I wanted to use that as, as a plot device and my biggest struggle with that story was writing a song that was going to be the featured lyrics that were going to tell part of the story. And I'm not a songwriter, but a very good friend of mine from college uh, is, and he wrote the lyrics in like an afternoon. Um, and I love that collaborative process. Yeah, and so the the story originally was called String Theory because I was thinking of a multiverse and I was thinking of instruments. Mm. But then he wrote this song and he just happened to call it Skip to the End. I was like, that's the title. That's the title of the book. That's the title of the song. Um, but... When he read the finished book, when it finally came out, he said to me, he's, he was like, you know, you've made it further than any of me or our friends in the film department. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, look at what you've made. Like this comic book is you've cast it, you've shot it, you've directed it, you've produced it, you've edited it. Like you've done – I mean that's why he loves comics and I think that's why Hollywood loves comics because a lot of these books are more or less proof of concepts. You can just look at the book and go, oh, I kind of see how the movie's going to play out. And that's why a lot of directors go make graphic novels. So is that the idea then? Skip to the end? Are we going to see Skip to the end the uh, film? Um, I optioned it oh. two years ago. Okay. Um, the Actually, I was really excited about this because um, the filmmaker who came to me um, is a trans woman. and. Mm-hmm. She took the story in a completely different direction. Um, the story is basically a loose allegory of the band Nirvana. It's yeah. my all-time favorite band. Mm-hmm. And she saw it and thought, well, I don't want to do a, a story about three white guys. I want to change it. Mm-hmm. And so she actually changed just about all the characters. It kept the plot generally the same, the concept the same, but changed all the characters. And I read her script and I was like, this is fantastic. Um, but as it goes, you know, you got to find financing and – production 
studios to back it. And capital? Is that what they call yeah. startup capital? <laughs> yeah. some, some very high overheads. and We're all sitting on a lot of it. It's just, what do we do with it? Yeah, do, exactly. I, do I make my movie? Do I <laughs> go to the Amalfi Coast? You know, it's hard. Yeah, and so it, that didn't pan out, unfortunately. Um, but I don't, I don't make comics to have them get turned into movies. That would, that would be a nice, it's a nice afterthought, but I'm making comics because I like the process of making comics. I like the collaboration of making comics. And uh, it's really, most of the time, it's just me and an artist creating this these characters, the, these these worlds, these stories, these conflicts. Um, and, you know, if someone sees adaptability in it, great. But, you know, I'm certainly not the type that is just simply trying to use it as a vehicle. About the process, you want to take us into that a little bit? Like, I mean, skip to the end, per se. You have a concept. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Yeah, I had the concept for music as a form of time travel. I mean, I've thought that since high school, um, and this is before I started writing, um, I fell into writing comics kind of by accident. Uh, My oldest brother um, was really into comics growing up. So I was exposed to them. Uh, I didn't read the stories. I looked at most of the art. and I didn't actually collect comics. I didn't – I w- wouldn't – if anybody asked, I wouldn't say I was a comic book reader by any means. So it was many, many years later. I was living in New York. I uh, went to go visit said brother in Connecticut where he lives. He's a doctor. He's got a family. He's pretty busy life. And he – we had the afternoon free. His wife took the kids to go do something and he's like, do you want to go to a coffee shop and like read? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And he's like, well, I've got some some comics that I want to kind of go through and just reread. And I was like, sure. So he handed me this copy of uh, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which is a phenomenal book. Um, and that kind of put me on the path to seeing if I could write a comic book. Um, so flash forward many years after that, um, I've, you know, I go to conventions semi-regularly. I have a pretty... Um, tight network of friends that are all producing comics, many of which are wildly successful, um, writing for Marvel and DC and writing Star Wars properties and Stranger Things properties. And um, But as far as my process, that's been kind of a, an ongoing uh, learning experience for the past 10 years since I've been writing. So like Skip to the End was a concept I had and I didn't know what to do with it. And then it wasn't until I kind of... I don't even know how I discovered Nirvana or or decided to really listen to them. I mean, I was aware of them when I was growing up, but I was also just a bit too young to appreciate them during their height of fame. Yeah. How old are you? If I may. Yeah, of course. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to be 37 this year. Okay. So I feel like they really got to pop in like 91. 91 was when Nevermind came out. That was the height and then kind of, Burned out by ninety four. So and you so, may you may have been listening to other things at the time. Oh yeah, I definitely was. And and the strange thing about that band in particular is that you know they they were making music for the outcasts. Mm. At least that's how Cobain put it in interviews. And at the time, the kids that I know listening to Nirvana, and Soundgarden, <laughs> and mm-hmm. all the grunge bands uh, were kids that I didn't associate with because they were cool and I was not. So it was really kind of kind of interesting to realize that that music was being made for someone like myself who just didn't feel like I fit in 
Um, and that's kind of what drew me into the band and then just listening to it and then figuring out it was there a story like, you know, Kurt Cobain is such a, uh, such a myth and a legend at this point. Um, I thought, well, if, if one of the surviving members could go back and save him, what would that be like? So from the concept of music as time travel, um, added the idea of saving your best friend or attempting to save your best friend. Uh, that's kind of where I started writing it. Um, and I, I made the conscious decision to not focus on the, the hard science of time travel. To I didn't want to explain how it works. I just want to say, there's a guitar, you play it, you go back in time. <laughs> and there's some rules, obviously. Mm, uh, there must be. Uh, without it's a, physics, after all. Yeah. There has to be rules. <laughs> there's some loose rules. And with those rules, um, I was able to kind of focus more on, on the characters and dealing with loss, dealing with addiction, um, dealing with closure, trauma. Um, those are the things that I wanted to focus on for that book. So, um, then you what, call on illustrators? Uh, yeah, so having a network of friends is helpful, especially mm-hmm. if they're mostly writers, because we all kind of have artists that we've been keeping an eye on. We have kind of like these loose rosters of artists that we just check in occasionally, like, are you available? Oh, no, I'm not available until blank. And I got linked up with the artist Alex Diotto, uh through a, a, a mutual friend. My friend um, Ed Brisson is a very successful comic book writer, writes for Marvel. Um, but at the time, he, he was still doing a lot of the creator-owned stuff that I do, which is new characters, new stories. They're not licensed properties. They're complete creations of our own. Um, and I mentioned that I was looking for somebody. and said, hey, I know this this – Young kid, he was at the time he was like twenty two, twenty three, living in, and he's lives in Italy. And he's like, I, I like his work. He's reached out to me, but I don't have anything for him. I'm like, why don't you reach out to him? So I did, and I pitched him my idea, and um, he really liked it. Uh, and so it kind of we, you know, you have to negotiate terms, and the terms have to be agreeable for both both people involved. And once all that stuff gets kind of ironed out, then you kind of just start working on it, and. With a comic, it's usually I will su- submit a script for each issue, which is about 22 pages. That looks kind of like a screenplay, but the format's a little different. But And then you know I send that to the artist, and the artist will send me layouts to kind of get a, a rough idea of how the pages are going to look. And then we go back and forth on that if, if we need. Most of them, you know, the artists I work with are very, very talented, so there's very few notes I have to give. And then they, you know, will go over those layouts with, um, finer pencils, more detail, inks, and then depending on the artist, the artist might color their own work or I will bring on a colorist who colors it and then a letterer at the end who does the uh, balloon placements, the text, and um, a book designer. So it's a lot of people involved to kind of keep on track. And then do you already have um, a publisher in place while all this is going on or do you just you make it and then you hope – Someone. That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> usually, for for a pitch mm-hmm. to get a publisher interested, you have to usually five to ten pages of completed art. Mm-hmm. That, and they need to look good enough that the editor reviewing it doesn't have to second guess it. That's mm-hmm. my goal. Like, I wanna, oh, I can see this exactly. Like, uh-huh, I want to yeah. present something that's like I can see this on on a bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Skip to the End, it was different because 
I wanted to pace the story in a very particular way, and mm. I didn't want to truncate the story by having to try to sell it in five pages. So I told Alex, I was like, look, the pitch is going to be the full issue, which is a huge commitment uh, for the artist because what essentially I could write in a, in a weekend or maybe a week would take an artist at least a month to draw. So I was like, I want to, I want to do this the way I want to do it, and I, I want to pitch the full first issue because it's paced in a very particular way. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. So for that, I did the full issue. Um, and it, I mean, took two years to find a publisher. Mm. And even then, um, it's gone through two different publishers, uh, which is, you know, a long convoluted story. It is a long con- convoluted story, but... Well, we don't have to get into that. No. But generally, so you just... I mean, I feel like I've seen it in the movies. Mm-hmm. Like, you, go, like, do you walk into a publishing house and do you say, hey, <laughs> take a look at this? Uh, no, it's actually mostly through email. Uh, occasionally, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> occasionally at a convention, I will ah. – I used to, like many – like five or six years ago, I, I would print out a, a pitch. Um, but I'd print it – it looks like a completed comic book. It looks like a very short comic book. It's got the cover. It's – Stapled and, and printed on beautiful paper. Mm. It's printed on, you know, you know. It, it should look like something you just pop on a shelf and someone would buy. So I would go to conventions with those mm. um, for various projects. And in the back, you'd have like some character sketches, the um, plot synopsis. And I would just go to publisher booths and network with editors and say, hey, do you mind, you know, accepting a leave behind? I've got, you know, a small ash can I'd like to leave. And they're like, okay. And or sometimes like, no, just email me. Okay. Um, so yeah, there was, when I started out, it was a lot of pitching in person, which is so stressful. (laughs) I can imagine. Um, but yeah, I mean, actually that's where kind of the acting, uh, helped me because I would actually practice my pitches and I'd, I'd memorize them. So like if someone asked, it was just like breathing. I could just say the, the elevator pitch. I could give a brief explanation of what the plot is without even thinking. Mm hmm. Um, like after doing it so often. Oh, yeah. yeah. And looking and watching myself in the mirror and seeing <laughs> yeah. how my, if I'm making an interesting face. <laughs> so Okay. Yeah. And it all paid off. <laughs> it, ha- it has. I mean, it's a slow road. Like, again, I haven't quit my day job, so I'm not making enough to live off of with this work. But um, for me, it's just enjoying it uh, more than anything. Is there anything else that you um... – are like, damn, we didn't even talk about that yet. Um, <laughs> I think something that... If I may put it that way. <laughs> it's a casual way to put it. Uh, something that I've been focusing on in the past year mm-hmm. is that... Um, my I've been focusing on my race and race politics most of my life. Um, but something that I've only started to focus on recently in the past year or so is... Uh, gender politics and I I'm not going to say I came out but like I, I've come to realize that that I'm non-binary and this has been kind of a struggle from for my parents to understand um, and what I once I realized that which was a, a it was like finding a, this missing puzzle piece that kind of ties the entire picture together and it's something that I've been kind of struggling with internally for, I think, as far back as middle school. So for me now, as, as far as a writer, I don't want to write uh, white cis male characters 
as the protagonist anymore. I think I did it initially because it, those characters are accessible. But at this point, I realize I'm in a position now where I can write about characters that reflect my, me on a more direct in a in a more direct way, whether it's a person of color, whether it's someone who's genderqueer, and I want to provide that for readers, especially young readers who are looking for those people that they can identify with. And it's been a really amazing and transformative for my process because I don't feel beholden to certain um, certain ideas or concepts when I write my stories. I can literally do whatever I want. And that's what's been kind of freeing about identifying as genderqueer is that I don't have to play by anyone's rules. And, you know, I was married. I was in a marriage that, I mean, I'm, it was an abusive marriage. It was very one-sided. And I l- was living this life where I would just hang out with other married people and we'd all talk about the same stuff. And I just think, is this it? Is this life? And then when I realized I don't identify with most of this, I was like, you're never, it's never too late to change. So making that decision was one of the best things I've ever done. And it's allowed me to um, really think about what my stories mean. Like what, what, what are, what's the, the narrative between the lines? Mm. What are the real themes I want to focus on? And that stuff has made my work better, I think. I think it has more depth. I think it's more interesting. And I think it's going to reach people that kind of need to need to feel seen. So, What does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? Hmm. Um... I think it's it's interesting that we live in a very I mean a very white state and I've come to realize that there are plenty of people of color uh especially um black brown that live here and are from here. Mm-hmm. And I think you know my day job I do tech support at a school and there are some really amazing programs that I've uh, learned about that are about f- featuring people that, you know, the slogan, I am from here. Mm. And, you know, when I, I think a lot of people assume they, that, you know, that stupid question of where are you from? No, no, where are you really from? Right. Um, and I think that there is more of a of a culture here, but I think it is small. And I, th- I think people don't I think there's there are people that are just very naive to think that oh because we're we're generally a very liberal state mm. like we're you know the the, the race issue doesn't apply mm. because we're it's like mm, they're two different things um, just because you're liberal about your politics doesn't mean that you know you understand life as anything other than a white person so I think. Um, yeah, I think that it's, I think it's small. I think it it feels, it feels small to me. And I'm still trying to actually participate more within that, these communities. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was really excited to be on the show. (laughs) You know, this is an outlet for people, uh, in our disposition. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely don't feel like I, I've 
made a big enough effort to kind of really... I don't think I can confidently a- answer that question hmm. because I feel like I'm still learning a lot about it. Um, and it's easy to just not go out. It's easy to just stay in your town. or And as a writer, it's easy to just stay in and write and just live in my own little world. So, But I feel like... It's. I think it's. It's there. I just think it's. It's pretty small, and and it needs more attention. When do you feel most brown and out? <laughs> um, honestly, uh, hanging out with my partner. Yeah, my partner uh, Elizabeth Waller is a very talented photographer, and uh, we talk about this stuff all the time, and it's it it feels really good to be able to talk about these these issues with somebody who also understands you know who also identifies as non-binary and you know she's she's educated me on on so many facets of the community that it's it's daunting uh but it's exciting that you know there is um space for people that identify as such and so yeah i feel most running out when i'm just hanging out with my partner. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you for giving us insight into your life, Jeremy. Um, It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. This is great.